0: thought leadership from PwC.
1: Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our series focused on climate reporting. This week, we're talking scope three, greenhouse gas emissions disclosures.
0: It's not a matter of fairness. It's a matter of understanding your impact. These emissions wouldn't happen unless you were requesting that Product or service.
1: That's my guest, Rich Good. Rich is a PWC principal who joined us last week to talk about scope one and scope two greenhouse gas disclosures. This week, we're hitting scope three. The scope three considerations are complex, and Rich has some practical advice on where to get started. And make sure to stay tuned till the end of the podcast where we explain why scope three reporting is so important. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. So, Rich, welcome back, talking about Scope 3 GHG emissions today. And for those of our listeners who didn't catch our episode last week, we started out talking about Scope 1 and Scope 2 GHG emissions. So, Rich, just to level set and give the 30-second version, um, for those who didn't listen to that episode, can you give us the quick definition of Scope 1, Scope 2, and Scope 3?
0: Sure. Great to be back with you all today. Um, So scope one, two, and three emissions really are, are just a nice way to delineate where the emissions happen. So scope one is often called direct emissions, and those are emissions that happen on site caused generally from fossil fuels or specialty chemicals. Those are direct emissions. Scope two are indirect emissions, largely from purchased electricity, as well as chilled water and steam. They're a little more less common than electricity which we all of course purchase but scope three is sort of the the laundry basket of all other emissions generally speaking often called, they're often called value chain or supply chain emissions and consi- and they break down into two broad categories upstream and downstream upstream is everything that goes into making your product or service and downstream is everything that happens after the product or service leaves leaves your facility
1: all right. So that's great background. And today's episode, we're going to dive deeper into scope three. And what's interesting is I feel like anytime you talk about GHG emissions, it's always like scope one and two. And then Scope 3 is sort of off by itself, and that's true even for the SEC rule, where we see all registrants required to disclose Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions, and then Scope 3 emissions are not required for smaller reporting companies and then for other companies only in the case if they are material or if they have a stated goal. So I guess why is that?
0: I think they categorize Scope 3 separately, and most people do, because for a long time, most people looked at the requirements for Scope 3 and said, well, wait a minute. There's not just one thing to calculate here. There are 15 separate categories, um, and, and until stakeholders like investors and customers and others – Asked for companies to report their scope three emissions, most companies would just pick off sort of an easy category like business travel by air or something like that and didn't tackle the more difficult ones. Scope three category one is something called purchase goods and services. And if you just take a step back for a minute and consider that in the context of a Fortune 500 company, how much does a Fortune 500 company buy in a year from their suppliers? Likely billions of dollars, glass, metal plastic, Mm -hmm. electronics, uh, steel so companies look at that and they're faced with a really daunting task of figuring out well what are the emissions that come from the purchases i've made and it's a really daunting task there's also the emissions that happen downstream after a product leaves your facility so for example automobiles there's a lot of carbon that goes into making a car you know foundries glass steel plastic electronics but then the cars designed to last 10 years 150,000 miles kind of thing all of those emissions are part of your downstream emissions from a product use phase. Um, so, so I think companies have looked at that and said, wow, that's really daunting. And you're relying on estimates upon estimates upon estimates. So the, the, the information is sort of difficult to, to, to put a lot of stock or faith in. And I think that's one of the reasons the SEC is that um, there'll at least be no audit requirement over scope three.
1: So Rich, I wanted to almost start laughing when you gave your example of the car, the downstream emissions, because my car is 20 years old and has less than 100,000 miles. So how does that fit in with, you know, how a company would have been thinking about, and I'm just one person, much less, you know, they're making millions of cars. So definitely it's interesting to think about those calculations and, and how companies are going to approach them. There's a lot of different directions we could go in here. Let's start, though, with these 15 categories. And you mentioned a couple categories. I don't know that we want to run through all 15, but can you give us a little bit more background on maybe at least the categories more companies are looking at or where we see more common targets and goals? Sure.
0: A particular company, scope 3 Emissions, are going to vary based on the industry they're in. So for example, uh, if you're an electric power utility and you're, you're burning natural gas or some other fossil fuel to generate electricity, a majority of your emissions are scope one and very, very little are scope three. But if you're a manufacturer, you're buying parts and services and pulling a product together and then sending it out to your customers to use, um, that, that's more common, uh, that's sort of a more common type scenario for most companies when they're calculating scope three emissions. The overwhelming majority of scope three emissions happen in just two categories. And that's scope three category one, which is purchase goods and services, and scope three category 11, which is product use phase. Um, Now, obviously, there there are products that don't have a use phase. So for example, a plastic cup, it doesn't really have much of a use phase in that it doesn't generate emissions directly um, as, as opposed to say a mobile phone, which does generate emissions over its life because you have to plug it in every night or to our earlier example, an automobile having those emissions. Those tend to be the, the largest. There are other categories and for say financial institutions, category 15, which is investments, that would be their largest category. So it does vary by type of company and industry. But in general, if you're making a product or a service for sale to the market, you're looking at scope three, category one and category 11, purchase goods and services and product use phase.
1: If I think about those two categories, though, it feels like there's a big difference between them because I have a lot of choices of that's of you gave the example of all these different types of products that you could be buying, but I could choose to buy them from uh, a company located closer to my facility. So there's less transportation, or I could choose to buy them from someone who's producing them in a greener way. There's lots of different choices I could be making to reduce my emissions in that, that category one. But if I think about the use phase, once I've transferred my product over to the customer, I've kind of lost control of it. And so if I'm thinking about reducing emissions, it, it, am I right in thinking I have more control upstream than downstream? Or is there another sort of factor I should be thinking about here? Sure, sure.
0: I, I, I think in that scenario, let, let's go back to the automotive company. Yes. Um, if they wanted to decrease their downstream emissions, their product use phase, um, one thing that is very much in their control is fuel efficiency or fuel economy. Mm. How many miles per gallon Mm -hmm. uh, does a car get? So you're seeing a shift today from larger displacement engines, like the big old V8s and V6s, down to smaller engines or even hybrid cars with very small engines and batteries, and of course, fully electric vehicles. Um, So that's one way you can really influence a significant category downstream by making more energy efficient products. And that's not just cars, but any sort of electronics, computers, laptops, and so forth. On the upstream side, purchase goods and services, with more and more companies being forced to disclose and calculate and disclose their scope three emissions, that's going to give companies a lot more data from which they could select to do business with more energy efficient suppliers. For example, in the SEC proposals, if it's material, companies are going to have to report under Scope 3, but they also have to do an intensity metric. One of the very useful intensity metrics, particularly if you're comparing four or five companies in the same industry, same category, is emissions per million dollars of revenue. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a company takes 10 tons of CO2 equivalent to generate a million dollars of revenue and another company takes 20, well, that's an easy decision point. If, you, if one of your goals is to reduce your scope three emissions, you can engage with suppliers that have lower, lower emissions or more energy efficient products and services themselves. And that has a ripple effect through your own operations and your own carbon footprint.
1: So Rich, if I take a step back and think about reporting my emissions and let's say reporting under the SEC proposal and that they're material (laughs) for this purpose of this discussion, I'm not a smaller reporting company. Does that mean I have to report all 15 categories? So, I have to figure out if all 15 categories are material. How, How are companies thinking about this?
0: that's a great question heather and very right now we're getting a lot of requests from our clients to calculate all 15 categories and our first question back to them is well how did you determine that all 15 categories are in scope for you are you do you have franchises that's one of the more you know less common categories do you have separate investments well, well no. the first thing we typically do is sort of sketch out a value chain map meaning look at well, how the company operates do you buy purchase good, do you buy goods and services do you transform them do they do, do you have to process these have warehouses and manufacturing how are they used are they typically thrown away are they recycled do they come back to you so we look at the value chain map and we can generally exclude certain categories let's say for the average company, no more than 10 categories tend to be in scope. The the other thing to look at too, and the SEC even kind of mentions this in the proposals, is you look at the 15 categories and if one may be relevant to you, but it's so immaterial, it's less Mm. than 0.1% of your overall emissions, you can make the statement basically that, this is potentially relevant, but we don't calculate it because it's immaterial and it's very, very difficult to get data. Um, you, you know, it may be, say, uh, uh, something on a product use phase. You're not entirely sure how your cl- client, your customers use your product. So, for example, if you're making a transistor, transistors can go for in anything from cars to radios to electronics to airplanes. So, it, it's very difficult to know how are they used. And the business case to go for that deep in the, in the supply chain to understand that may not be there. Um, certainly, you don't want to ignore the big categories. Everybody's going to have commuting. Everybody's going to buy things. E- even a consultancy like, like us, we, we, we have lots of purchases that we make every year, um, and, and goods as well as services. So you look at the more rare, uncommon categories. And if it's and if it's reasonable, you've done the homework and say, look, this is just not material to how our company operates. It's okay to exclude them. But my advice to every client is transparent. If you don't include a certain category, say so and say why.
1: So, Rich, I have so many follow-up questions. Let me try to get them in order. So, first one is terminology because we've used the term value chain. I also caught you saying supply chain in there. So, are those interchangeable or how do you think about those two, two terms?
0: Yeah, they they are interchangeable. Value chain is really something that's that's gained a lot of traction and uh, recently simply because it it's where organizations, people, and processes add value to raw purchases, raw materials to create a mar- uh, a product. And, and then that cr- product adds and creates value throughout the value chain and then can be recycled and then brought back. So, re- value chain is sort of, I think, a more accurate view of, of what the supply chain used to be. Because when people think supply chain and suppliers, they tend to think of the, the top three criteria, which is quality, price, and on time delivery. And if I can get those three things, that that's all that matters. But now with more and more focus on greenhouse gas emissions mm. and ESG in general, purchase criteria is now taken to include, do you have a greenhouse gas emissions target to calculate your emissions? Uh, are you planning on being net zero? And increasingly, we're seeing proposals, uh, RFPs come in to our clients, as even to us, where before you're even allowed to bid, you have to make a statement that your... Um, calculating and reducing your greenhouse gas emissions. Maybe you have a DE&I target. You're issuing a sustainability report. You don't even get to play if you don't do those things. So clearly we're seeing value chain have a ripple effect into even how things are procured.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting because I think if you go back even five years, I'm not sure we really would have heard people talking so much about value chain. And now it seems like that's sort of the term that's on everyone's lips. So very interesting um, shift just in how our words change, how we're thinking about things. Let me ask you then some questions about the calculation itself, because as you described running through the 15 categories, sort of xing out those that don't pertain to you, that makes total sense to me. I can picture the chart in the GHG protocol, you know, the list, and say, okay, I have this, I don't have this, I have this, I don't have this. What, what I struggle with, and it almost seems like a paradox to me, is that to say something is immaterial, you have to, to have information to calculate that. And so now that you've calculated it, then you, it, you how do, can you say you didn't calculate it? So, and I know that was very circular, what I just said, but it just, making that assertion that something immaterial doesn't seem as easy as as maybe it is, you know, you read it, it's like, oh, okay. But then actually to sort of quote, prove that how do companies go about doing that?
0: Now, that's a great question and, and one that um, a lot of our clients are faced with. How do we determine without actually mm-hmm. going through the process of calculating right. it? And there are lots of, of good tools available out there, uh, that uh, free tools from the greenhouse gas protocol, for example, where it, it, it's basically called the Greenhouse Gas uh, Scope 3 greenhouse gas estimator tool, where you can just put in basic things like, uh, how much did I spend on this? So for example, if it's transportation and you only spent maybe a million or $2 million on transportation in terms of purchase goods and services versus your own fleet, well, that will give you a number. You know, this, this, cal- this is roughly... 10 tons of, of CO2 emissions it, compared to purchase goods and services, which may be a hundred thousand tons or, or a million tons, you can then kind of get that quick view. So what when we're assisting clients, we use these tools to do a quick scan first to help them determine which categories are in scope by coming up with a rough number using an estimator tool.
1: All right. So then let's let's say we've done this. Now we're down to our material categories then what, because as I think about your example, the Fortune 500 company building, um, buying countless numbers of products uh, for that category one, how do they go about calculating their emissions?
0: Yeah, that's a a great question. And a lot of times companies purely estimate, they estimate their emissions and say, we bought
1: $50
0: million worth of plastic, plastic has an emissions number of this, that must be our emissions. that approach is okay. However, the problem with pure estimations is it's very difficult to reduce your emissions based on estimates. There's sort of a Uh, A four-tiered approach to calculating your your gathering that information to calculate the emissions. The first is getting right to invoice level data. And as auditors, that's something we always love. Mm -hmm. If if these are your emissions, show me all the way back to the invoice level that you got that right. This is 11,000 kilowatt hours or 20 tons or something. Mm -hmm. Show me the invoice. That's the most accurate piece. That's the most accurate way. Uh, The second is you can look at something called an LCA or a life cycle assessment. Life cycle assessment. Is a specialized study. It's a very technical study. There's specialists. I, I personally know two people with PhDs in LCA, mm. um, but it will tell you the lifetime emissions of a product or service. And it's it, it very, very detailed, very, very accurate. And you can use an LCA if it exists. So if you're buying a product or service from a, from a company, you can ask if they have an LCA. The third level is what I call industry specific guidance. Mm. For example, I I talked about uh, transistors and how they're a very small product and they can use anywhere from one-tenth of a watt to 20 watts depending on their application. Well, how do you know how they're used short of going and surveying your customers? Mm -hmm. Or in your example, whoever you bought your car from, are they going to put a tracking device and say, "Well, Heather's car is twenty years old, and she only drives five thousand right. miles a year"? I mean, that 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 would just make your head explode, right? It's it's just too much work. So mm-hmm. you look at industry specific guidance, and they would say, look for the average passenger vehicle. It's it has a per- forecast to last ten years and one hundred fifty thousand miles, and you use that in your calculation versus making that wild guess.
1: Mm-hmm. And then the last. Wait, sorry, but- Rich. Let me pause you there, though, because what you're saying is you would use an industry average for the miles and the life. But then I would know the specifics for my car that I just manufactured of how much um, the efficiency, the efficiency right. of my car. So there is some company-specific information, even in that example that you're using. Exactly,
0: exactly. Um, and then the final would just be an estimation. Um, and and, and uh, I think a lot of people just start with estimations. But mm-hmm. to me, it's it's the fourth and, and final way to to calculate your emissions because there are these other good ways to to try to get similar numbers. Um, you may just estimate instead of using your specific company information. Uh, you would just say 10 years, 150,000 miles, average of all passenger vehicles to say 22 miles per gallon. And that's mm-hmm. a pure average. And the problem with that is if you can never reduce it. So if you have an aggressive greenhouse gas reduction goal or trying to reduce your scope three, hit a net zero target, just dealing with estimations, you're, you're really not going to be able to get there.
1: I totally agree. Let me go back then to the LCA First, can you remind me what the else that stood for?
0: Life cycle assessment.
1: Life cycle assessment. So, are you starting to see more of these being done with all the focus on, uh, you know, lifetime emissions, or is it still something that's relatively rare? It's
0: becoming increasingly common, particularly for what I call capital goods or larger purchases. So, you may not have an LCA for, say, a keyboard, but mm-hmm. you'd have an LCA for a laptop. Um, so like I said, it's, it's, it's a fairly complex, fairly engaged process, and you need to hire a specialist to do it. And about 10 years ago, it was very, very uncommon. And what, what most companies did, and, and when I was in industry, what we did for LCAs, when our customers started asking for them, we said, look, we, we, we don't really have the capacity to go back to cover all our legacy products, but mm-hmm. we're putting a stake in the sand today. Any new product from here on in will have an LCA. And I know many companies do that. It's just part of the product development process. When you're developing it, you have an LCA. And the beauty of doing an LCA is you can sort of turn the dials a little bit. Let's say, let's go back to the automotive example. If we're going to use um, steel to make uh, or, or iron to make our motor, but we could experiment with, say, magnesium or aluminum to see does that reduce mm. the overall emissions. Before you build it, you can see the impact. So that, that's one of the real beauties of it, of an LCA. Uh, same with the big motors versus a small turbocharged motor. You can say, okay, it creates similar power, but much lower emissions we're going to go with that.
1: So one thing that I think troubles many people when they talk about scope three emissions is to your point, even with the LCA, there's assumptions and most companies don't have those. And, you know, and then as you kind of go down your waterfall to your final sort of estimation, it's almost like you're kind of putting your finger in the air and saying, okay, you know, I'm going to get close, but it's not like the type of data that we're used to reporting in our financial reports. And so how do you see companies thinking about this sort of lower level of accuracy? Is it all about then disclosure? You know, how, how do you get, other people comfortable with using the information that you're disclosing when there is so much estimation inherent in it.
0: That's a great quote I heard once, which is, if time is money, transparency is time. Mm -hmm. And to me, what that means is be open and be transparent. If you made a, a guess, an estimate, say so. And where do you say it? To me, it's in your inventory management plan. And let me talk just for a second about what that means. Your greenhouse gas inventory management plan, some people call it a greenhouse gas accounting manual, is really your central source of truth. If you don't have an inventory management plan today, get one. Uh, That's my best advice. (laughs) Because uh, for a few reasons. One, I, I sort of tongue-in-cheek call this the, the the winning the lottery document, meaning if the person who calculates your greenhouse gas emissions wins the lottery and doesn't come back to work tomorrow, you can read this document and calculate your greenhouse gas inventory the same way this person calculated for consistency year over year. Most people can't remember what they had for lunch last Tuesday. I know I can't. Mm-hmm. How am I going to remember what assumption I made last year on scope 3 category 10? Uh, so writing this all down and being open and transparent so that your users, when they're looking at the information, can say, aha, I see you made some estimations here, and it gives them the overall comfort level. Can I rely on this, or do I expect it to improve over time?
1: All right. So then if I'm a controller, and I'm now suddenly tasked with starting to develop greenhouse gas information, or maybe have oversight, so someone's been calculating it, but now due to the increasing prominence and there's the desire to have controls over it's kind of moved over to me. And I asked for documentation, et cetera, where should I start in terms of what, what do you recommend to that controller to kind of do first when they're taking something like this on?
0: Uh, The the very first step is to understand that this non-financial information, Greenhouse gas is what we're talking about is going to eventually have to have the same controls, consistency, accuracy, and reportability as your financial information. And your financial information, look, GAAP and and, and IFRS rules have been around for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Greenhouse Gas Accounting, not so much. So we're all sort of playing catch-up. Now, for the controller, one thing we are seeing is increasingly this new job function called ESG finance, where you're seeing people sit in the controller's office who sort of bridge that gap between the finance function and the ESG functions. We're seeing more of this. People can sort of speak both languages. But... What, what what the controllers who we're talking to are asking mm-hmm. us about is first explain to me this rule <laughs> and the <laughs> European rule the CSRD and yeah. what exactly is it I have to do and then they kind of go through their stages and say well I don't have confidence or faith enough in my greenhouse gas inventory to sign off on this in an SEC document that, that's subject to it, it's an mm-hmm. SEC filed so it's subject to Exchange Act of thirty four penalties so it's it's mm-hmm. a big deal on most CFOs and controls that we're speaking to are saying, would you just come in and start by assessing our scope one and two greenhouse gas inventory to make sure, and our inventory management plan, to make sure we could stand up to an audit. Really just determining what are your material gaps? Can we get to invoice-level data? Do you have all this written down so we can see what assumptions you made? Is the data right? What's the chain of custody? What sort of controls do you have around this? that That's the type of thing that we're recommending all, all CFOs, and you can engage with an internal audit function. You mm-hmm. can use your auditor. You can use outside help to really understand, are my scope one or two emissions and inventory investment-ready, investment-grade-ready? Mm-hmm.
1: And then it's interesting you say that because then now we in this podcast are talking about scope 3 it's hard enough to get your hands around scope 1 and 2 as as the controller is thinking about scope 3 is there anything specific other than you know starting with the categories what do you recommend in terms of just getting your hands around for example all of the things you're you're buying
0: right right so so to to get a handle around all the things you're buying so Mm -hmm. scope three category one purchase goods and services very often your enterprise resource planning your erp system is the place to start these these tools will allow you to go to supplier level information invoice level information or even commodity code so for example we're, we're, we've been using the automotive case study, and I think it's mm-hmm. helpful because most people know what cars are and exactly. they've ridden them. Um, y- you would know that you're buying steel, um, you're buying plastic and glass, and those are commodities that you can find emissions factors for. Ideally, You can go back and get those emissions, that weight, you know, I bought 10 tons of steel or five tons of glass or what have you, but your ERP systems is sort of your your connection to your suppliers. Mm -hmm. And that's where this is going. More and more supplier engagement. Can we talk to our suppliers using our ERP or other platforms to Glean the information we need to understand the emissions. Maybe that supplier has already calculated their emissions. Uh, I know a lot of the the cloud providers, you know, the internet cloud providers, um, they already calculate their own scope one, two, and three emissions. And for their customers to come to say, well, geez, how much of my emissions um, are, are how much of your emissions are allocated to me? And they can easily provide that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's becoming the expectation. And so you've got two expectations: one. Calculating and reporting your own. But two, particularly if you have big customers as big companies as your customers, pretty soon they're going to be asking you, well, what are your what are your emissions? So calculating them so you could share them downstream with your customers is is also something people are going to have to get used to pretty quickly.
1: Well, and Rich, I think that's an interesting point. And one actually Casey Herman talked about on the recent webcast, which is that Even without the SEC proposal, so if we kind of think about our whole audience, which includes a lot of people working for private companies, even if you yourself are not going to be asked to report or maybe the SEC changes something with that proposal, we don't know, this information is or the need for this information is not going away.
0: That's exactly right. Even if the SEC proposals went away, there's still the EU rule, and that has a very low bar for entry. It's it's something like 40 million euro in turnover or mm-hmm. 250 employees. Uh, most Fortune 1,000 companies I know ha- are, fall into being in scope for the European rule, mm-hmm. and then investors. The SEC designed this rule because of pressure from invest- the big investment firms, and they uh, they they've, they've been very clear with companies. We don't care whether or not you believe in climate change that's not the issue. We're seeing damage and risk and lost investment revenue because of impacts of climate change and we simply want to know from you, your company, have you considered it and what are you doing to manage it um, so so you're absolutely right that the SEC will not even if it went away completely, the pressure to calculate report and reduce your greenhouse gas emissions are not going away anytime soon.
1: All right. Very helpful. So I want to take a step back and look at a few bigger picture questions. So first of all, we've mentioned the greenhouse gas protocol a few times. However, we haven't really explained what that is. So can we, let's start by just talking about that, and then I have a few specific follow-up questions.
0: Sure. The greenhouse gas protocol, uh, and, and there are a couple of documents. So there's the, the Greenhouse Gas Protocol Corporate Standard. There's a Value Chain Standard. And there's some other spe- technical guidance uh, addendums along the way. But it was created about 22 years ago, around the year 2000, from a, a collaboration between the World Resource Institute, the WRI, and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, WBCSD. That's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, but but they uh, engaged a cross-industry multi-stakeholder task task force to really get their hands around how do we calculate and report or even talk about greenhouse gas emissions. Well, one of the things I, I often say um, is, is that carbon is an amorphous subject. Uh, people don't really understand carbon. Is it bigger mm-hmm. than a bread box? Um, it, what's mm-hmm. a ton of carbon look like? And and I, I think you know I teach, I teach a class on carbon accounting uh, you know, outside of work, and it's a great way to keep, keep up to date on what's <laughs> happening. But one thing I do in the very beginning is I talk about a ton of carbon. And in its gaseous form, meaning as a gas, a ton of CO two is about the size of a seven forty seven figure oh, a cube, around the size of a seven forty seven. But in a solid form, it's a one meter by one meter block. You know, you couldn't barely put it in your pocket. It weighs a ton, um, but, <laughs> but it gives you an idea. So that's amorphous. Whereas understanding you know, revenue, a million dollars, most yes. people understand what that is exactly. The WRI in the greenhouse gas protocol tries to merge business with environment by saying, look, here, here is sort of the totality of your emissions. There's what you burn on your own. There's what you buy from other people. And then there's sort of the extended supply chain. And breaking them down in those categories kind of makes it bite-sized and easy to understand. And, and when you're calculating emissions... I always say, look, this is addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. It's not quantum mechanics. It's yes. fairly straightforward. It just you have to sit down and follow step-by-step step the greenhouse gas protocol, which gives you that handy guide. How do I envision my company? How do I draw boundaries? What is my control approach? Um, the greenhouse gas protocol can be a little bit frustrating for some people because it can be sort of vague. It was written <laughs> to to... Um, appeal to every company in the world. And of course, there's lots of companies that have special facts and circumstances. And that's what sort of the industry-specific guidance comes into play.
1: Well, yeah, I think I put myself in the category. The first time I read it, like, this is it. Um, But I want to come back to industry. Let me ask a question, though, because you mentioned the other documents. And I do highly recommend to our listeners to to pull out and to read that corporate standard. But I actually did sort of dig around on uh, the, the website and found some of the other documents about calculating scope three. And to your point, some of the other technical documents I actually did find them interesting and in some ways less frustrating than the broader document. And so for people who are digging into this, do you recommend reading some of those other ones? Or are those really more for, for true, true specialists?
0: I think that the... Scope 3 standard, they they do call it the value chain standard, is a great document to read. You're you're right. The corporate standard kind of covers it at the highest level, boundaries control approach. But the the value chain standard breaks down each of the 15 categories and it provides calculation examples for each. Uh, It goes over some of the things we talked about here direct invoice level, LCA, estimations, how to make better estimations. Uh, there's a whole chapter dis, uh, devoted to improving inventory quality over time. Um, so if you don't, a lot of co- companies that we speak would say, well, I'm really worried about getting this right out of the gate. When I have to restate it later? Probably, but that's expected. It's, it's You're not expected to be 100% perfect right out of the gate, particularly on scope three. But there is the expectation that if if twelve categories are relevant for you and you can only calculate 10 this year, just say we're we're working on eleven and twelve and we're gonna try better next year. It's again that transparency piece is really important. But that's a great document to read, the value chain standard.
1: I did read that one and I, I did enjoy it. And like actually even some of the other documents I've I just found helpful because there are more information. One point though that you just made that I think is interesting is you know, it takes time and It's one thing for your voluntary reporting to say, oh, I only could do 10 out of the 12. Okay, you know, I'm going to do better next year. But when it does come to the SEC reporting, if they're material, you're not really going to have that out. And so sitting down and starting to think through this now, I think is imperative for most companies, just given the amount, to your point of math, that needs to be done But math in a way of just gathering what are all these inputs, I think once you figure out what all your inputs are, to your point, actually doing the calculation is not that complicated.
0: That's right. And there are lots of tools out there to assist you in those calculations.
1: So let me go back to something you said about industry, because you did make a point about industry specific and we've touched on it a few other places. And so if you are, let's say, that automobile manufacturer in some other specific industry, do you typically see companies looking to industry specific guidance or does that really going to depend what industry you're working in?
0: I, I do see companies relying on industry specific guidance, whether that's published officially or informally, you're going to an industry trade show, trade group or a workshop mm-hmm. or something like that, and and just kind of look and see how others are calculating it. Um, but but you know here's a different example, and it's one that that is covered in the in the value chain uh, standard. It talks about indirect use phase emissions, which are optional. But you know a, a company that makes washing machines, right? There's typically three temperature settings: cool, warm, hot. How do you know and that uses different amounts of energy Of course you're going to heat the hot water and so forth. How do, are you as a washing machine manufacturer <laughs> supposed to know? Um, you could do you could do surveys and get an average, but the industry trade groups do that on your mm-hmm. behalf. Typically when you join an industry trade group trade group, they do th- you, you, you pay money to join mm-hmm. the group and they do things on your behalf, like send surveys to customers. How do you use this product? What sort of energy? How often would you use a hot water wash as opposed to a cool water wash? And that information is then available that you can cite the source. So it's less of the wet finger in the air to say, you know, yeah. is this a good guess? But it's a more educated guess gotten through primary research from the industry trade group.
1: We haven't talked about RECs and uh, offsets yet today. So RECs, Renewable Energy Credits, and that is from generation of renewable power. And you get uh, the certificate for every megawatt. You can get one certificate. And a lot of companies are buying those directly now, even though maybe they're buying their electricity from their local supplier. And then offsets also a lot of companies are using, whether that's, you know, someone hasn't cut down a forest or the farmer has done something. How do you see RECs and offsets fitting in with scope three emissions?
0: Well, that's a great question. And we, we are seeing examples where companies uh, are incorrectly using RECs and offsets. And I think you gave a great explanation of what a REC is. And RECs are used specifically to offset electricity purchases And since electricity purchases show up in scope two, RECs can only be used to offset scope two emissions, not scope three emissions. Carbon offsets tend to be a little bit more expensive. They're an instrument that certifies that one ton of CO2 equivalent has either been removed or avoided from taking place from the atmosphere. Offsets can be used more flexibly. They can offset scope one. They can offset scope three. And you could even use them to offset scope two. I don't, I don't really recommend that. Mm-hmm. Recs are designed for scope two and, and they tend to be a lot less expensive than, than offsets anyway. So using the right tool for the right application is really important. Uh, it, you know, if you consider a REC, it certifies that one megawatt of clean electricity has been generated. Well, how would you apply that to your scope 3 inventory that's expressed in tons of CO2e? Um, right. It, it's an it's a apples to oranges comparison.
1: Yeah. And I think one th- point here is that if you are using RECs and offsets in the SEC proposal, you would need to show those separately. You're showing your gross emissions and then could be you know showing these reductions. So... I have a philosophical question, just taking a big step back, because if we think about the scope one, scope two, and scope three, all emissions are some companies scope one emissions, even that electricity, I, I think for the power company would be scope one. And you know, that steel you're buying is scope one for someone and so it almost seems like Scope 2 and Scope 3 are double, triple, quadruple, I don't even know the right multiple, counting the emissions. And so why do? Why is it still important to report those numbers? Couldn't you just argue everyone should just report Scope 1 and we'd be done with it? Well, Scope 1 are what I
0: call the only real emissions in that you're, you're releasing CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, other sort of... Uh, gases into the air. So those are, quote, the only real emissions, right? Um, And and certainly here in the U.S., we have a mandatory reporting rule from the EPA. Uh, Certain companies, if they emit over 25,000 tons of CO2E from a single location, have to report. And now very, very few companies do that, but steel companies, limestone, cement, Power companies, oil refineries, they're all clearly in the rule. And that's designed to capture a majority of those emissions Mm -hmm. and report it on a mandatory basis with very significant penalties if you don't. But to your question, is scope three double counting or triple counting uh, or quantum counting? Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Companies often say, well, scope three emissions aren't my emissions. It's double counting. So it's not fair. And it's not a matter of fairness, it's a matter of understanding your impact. These emissions wouldn't happen unless you were requesting that product, or service, moving it around, or customers were using it and recycling or throwing in the landfill. It's a matter of understanding your impact. And mm-hmm. particularly for larger organizations, the, the viewpoint always used to be that, well, I can't, I'm not going to measure my scope three. Or if I have to measure it, I'm certainly not going to reduce it because it's someone else's emissions it's still impact and the large companies who have set greenhouse gas reduction goals for scope three have demonstrated that it can be done. And more importantly, it should be done. The largest companies, the, the, the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies mm-hmm. that exist out there, you have a lot of power with your suppliers. And I personally believe a rising tide lifts all boats. So by providing guidance, tools, support, training on what you want from your suppliers, you want them to calculate their emissions, you want them to share them with you, you want to understand what goes into it. Is it accurate? Is it is it estimated? So you can then use that as part of your scope three emissions is, is a benefit to all because you're upskilling your suppliers, particularly the smaller private companies who, who can't spell greenhouse gas emissions, um, <laughs> let alone ever calculated them to just say, look, this is important to me. And instead of just pounding you over the head and say, if you don't do this, we're not going to do business with you, you put com- the largest companies who have the resources to do this, and there's many good examples out there of companies who have shared all these tools with their suppliers to say, well, you know, here's how to calculate it. Here's what we expect, and we'll give you some time frame and even some technical support and advice on how to get there.
1: All right. I actually think maybe I should have started with that question, Rich, so people really understood why this is important, because I have to say that is a question that's been troubling me. But listening to your explanation, and I think in particular, this idea that those emissions wouldn't occur if it wasn't for someone you know, further downstream in the value chain, I I do think that's an important perspective and one that kind of helps put all of this into context. So Rich, There's so much more to talk about. I think this is it for today, but definitely looking forward to having you back. So thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to be here.
1: That does it for today. Join me back here next week for new podcast episodes. On Tuesday, continuing our tax toolkit discussion with a few challenging scope areas of ASC 740 And on Thursday, we're back with Investor Perspectives on ESG reporting. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.